That's Enough Out of You podcast is sponsored by Todd John's Law. Unfortunately, bad things happen to good people, whether it's the result of an auto accident caused by the carelessness of another driver or being charged with a crime. Dealing with the aftermath of a personal injury accident or being involved with the criminal justice system can be extremely difficult. That's why, whatever you're facing, you should never go it alone. You need an experienced attorney who will stand by you every step of the way. Todd is experienced, licensed, trusted, respected, and guaranteed. No one will work harder or more diligently on your behalf, and he will personally handle your case from beginning to end. Located on Drinker Street in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, Todd has been representing the legal rights of Scranton and Wilkesbury personal injury victims and those accused of a crime for over 20 years. At Todd John's Law, the utmost priority is ensuring that your rights are always protected and that your case is resolved as quickly and fairly as possible so that you can move on with your life. Call Todd John's Law at 570-876-6903. With Todd John's Law, you will receive equal justice under the law. Sorry, Thank I you. want to start recording because I don't want to miss any of this stuff. This is good. No, it's okay. I mean, the first, art, the first articles that I wrote for Kenny's and King was called A Presumption of Innocence, Lee Harvey Oswald, and it was three parts. And it was basically just going through the kind of evidence in the Kennedy case against them. So that was the first kind of series I'd done. And then I came up with this idea for the 60th anniversary to do something kind of special. Um, I was kind of I was kind of at work one day and I was kind of had a bit of downtime. So I started like piecing together like certain points and then I was like, you know, I could do this thing because I know Len done this um, thing. It was like 50, 50 points for 50 years, 50 yeah, reasons Leno for Sanic, 50 years. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. So then I was like, you know, I might just do one 60 reasons for 60 years. And originally I just wanted to keep it kind of brief, brief points and go through them. But it just grew arms and legs. And like any kind of complicated murder case, uh, I suppose, it just you had to you couldn't just say a brief statement and move on from it you had to elaborate right and that's why that that's where it was because i didn't want to just make a brief statement and move on because people might have been able to not attack it but people might not have grasped why i was was saying that so i wanted to present evidence to back up each of my claims and oh, it took it, it took so long it, it really takes took so long. I think when I sent it to Jim, I think it was like 147 pages long. <laughs> this 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 article, right? And uh, I, and I think he was like, "Wow, this is like they've <laughs> never because I I've heard him say they've never published anything this big before." But right, I was glad that he'd done it and uh, really appreciate. It. And I I was actually on the website earlier because I'm writing another article for the website at the minute about the route because when I, I was just in Dallas there for the 60th and I was speaking at Lansar and I was you know doing all these tours and whatever and one of the things that I did was I went to Irvine on I think it was November 20th because Ruth Payne was talking with right. Thomas Mallon there so I was in the crowd for that and listened to it and Jim asked me to do a review for it so I'm doing that now but again it's grown arms and legs because I'm kind of like well I need to refute all the points in it. So most of it was taken up by the Walker case. 
Right. So that that was um, yeah. So that was that kind of another interesting avenue to kind of look into. But the majority of my work has been on the the Kennedy case. But yeah, so that's what I'm doing with myself at the minute. So nice. I think um, I think I'm going to be sending the article pretty soon to Jim. I did promise him it like a week and a half ago, but I'm just trying to make it even more better. So hopefully he appreciates it. All right. Sounds good. And, and the uh, so this is That's Enough Out of You. I'm uh, Bill Rader, uh, along with Sean Kane. The, and the uh, our guest this week, uh, gentlemen you've been listening to, is Johnny Cairns. Cairns, right? Cairns? Yeah, that's the one, Cairns, yeah. All right. All right. I, I knew I'd want – it took me a couple times, but I got it. All right. Um, and Johnny is, uh, along with Dave O'Brien, the author of the book – uh, JFK case not closed, key evidence dismissed, ignored, altered, or suppressed to frame Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone assassin. And then you also didn't mention that Johnny's coming to us from Scotland, Billy. From Scott. Well, if you couldn't tell by by uh, his accent, <laughs> Johnny. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I get, a couple of people when I was in the states thought I sounded Irish, so it's yeah. either Irish or Scottish. I usually get. Um, I've been. I, I remember when I was in Amsterdam one time and I was speaking to this American couple and thought I was German. I think the, that's the weirdest one I've ever heard. Wow. But uh, yeah, yeah, I know. So, but yeah, it was. Um, I'm Scottish. Yeah, coming to you for the capital city, Scotland. We're about to and we're about to get a storm. So, fun and games, fun and games. It's never good the weather in Scotland. We get like a sunny day. Or our summer lasts about a week, and then it's back in with the wind and the rain. So <laughs> well, we got a lot of snow and uh, very cold here, Johnny. So it's not better here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I know, but I mean, this, I, I love being in America. I mean, I just came back, and I want to go back. Just, just a different. It's just a different way of life. Good food, good people, friendly people as well. Really friendly. People always want to help you, and. Uh, yeah, I really can't wait to come back. Don't know when I will be coming back, but hopefully it's uh, very soon. Well, all right, let's get into it. Uh, so what we were talking about earlier with Johnny was his article that he wrote on Jim Diogenio's uh, website, Kennedy's and King, um, on Lee Harvey Oswald. And and that's what I want to talk about tonight, Johnny, because your research on Oswald is tremendous. And I just want to do a really deep dive. And let's start with... Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in having no motive to kill John Kennedy and, and talk about that and talk about the Warren commission, what they came up with for a motive for Oswald. Well, the, 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 the what I wanted to do in my articles was to show that because I, I, I feel like a lot of the time that Oswald is almost this, you know, footnote in history. A lot of people don't, realize or remember that this was a real human being he had real worries aspirations for the future and all that kind of stuff so i really wanted to try and have a deep dive into into him and what he was like as a person what his motives might be and what his opinions were on on jack kennedy and he's a he did admire jack kennedy he really did like right. him right and if you go through various testimonies of people in the Warren Commission, 
like Francis Martello, for example, he said that Oswald gave him the impression that he seemed to favour President Kennedy more than he did Khrushchev. And mm. people like Sam Balin said that he couldn't see Oswald having any venom towards President Kennedy. The De Morn Shields, Jean and George, both testified that Oswald was an admirer of President Kennedy. And they thought that Oswald thought that President Kennedy was doing a very good job with regard to the racial problem that was existing in America at the time. So this was very high praise from Oswald. So, yeah, the record clearly indicates that Oswald admired and liked Jack Kennedy. So then the obvious question to that is, then why would they assassinate him? A guy who he liked and admired, you know? So, and Oswald apparently says it himself when he's interrogated. He says that his wife and I, like the presidential family, they were interesting people. So, again, it's more evidence that he obviously liked President Kennedy. Now, the Warren Commission, they tried to come up with various different ideas, let's call it that, why Oswald would have assassinated the president. Now, they they came up with stuff like Oswald had a deep-rooted resentment of authority. They questioned Oswald's ability to enter into meaningful relationships. And they also speculated that Oswald had an urge to try and find a place in history, you know. But... Again, it's like, well, if he had this urge to find a place in history, then why, why did they, deny it? Why did he so vehemently deny it? Absolutely, right. exactly, exactly. I, I mean, and I mean, the strongest, the strongest statement of Oswald, in my opinion, is when he's being led. I think it was Saturday, November twenty third. He's being led through the hall, and the reporters are asking him, asking him, "Did you fire that rifle?" And he says, I don't know what dispatches you people have been given, but I emphatically deny these charges. Now, that doesn't sound like somebody who's trying to find a place no, in history. No. You know? And um, it's quite it's quite interesting, actually. I don't know if any of you guys are aware, but when Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby and he's lying on the, the ground of the city jail, uh police officer by the name of B.H. Combest go, went up to Oswald and asked him, basically, you know, say to him, and the, your your wounds are basically really serious. Is there anything that you want to confess to, anything that you want to tell us now? You know, because this is basically going to be your last chance. And Oswald apparently looks at Combest and he shakes his head. Now, if Oswald was really looking to cement that place in history, that was his time to to really say, okay, I done it. Absolutely. But even even when he knew he was dying, because Combest says in his testimony he used language basically was telling Oswald that he was dying. And Oswald would have knew himself. I mean, if anyone has ever shot, that's probably their first thought, right? Right. Exactly. And he um he shakes his head and says basically and to me that's a that's that's a strong statement of innocence again, you know. So yeah, I, I do feel like um I do feel sorry for Oswald, believe it or not. Because I've kind of I know different people seem to think he was involved to a degree. I I don't I think he was manipulated and I think he exactly. was. Exactly. I, I agree up. with you, Johnny. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think he, he knew anything. 
So it's, it's so you have this twenty four year old guy who he's got two kids, two kids who he seemingly adores, um, and another thing that I raised in the articles was would Oswald being the type of father he was, being the type of you know person that he looked after his kids and really loved his kids, would he even have attempted such a thing as this? Because he knew whether he was successful or he failed, he was putting his family and his kids in grave danger. And I think it's uh, questions like that I was trying to basically ask people, you know, to really kind of really kind of see this case, I suppose, through Oswald's eyes prior to the assassination. Because all these thoughts must be going through a person's mind. What mm. happens if I miss? You yeah. know? Sure. And uh, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, we know the president was assassinated. But if it's Oswald and he's alone, he must be thinking to himself, well, if I miss here, you know, what am I going to do with the rifle? <laughs> I have to leave it on the sixth floor regardless. So it just seems like such a waste. Right. So that, yeah, this is the type of, these are the type of questions I wanted people to really think about. And um, yeah, that was another point that I really wanted to put in the in the article. Also, the fact that Oswald and the testimonies of various people, they were they basically said that Oswald himself was um, not capable of any type of extreme violence like like that. I mean, there was there was many people that said that, um, like Francis Martello again testified that he was very surprised when he found out that Oswald had been arrested for the president's killing. He said that Oswald gave him the impression that he was not a violent individual. He was more of a passive type of individual. And um, just other different people testified like that. Bill Fraser said that Oswald loved children. Apparently children from the urban neighbourhood used to go up to the Payne house to play with Oswald and his and his children as well. And uh, there was one guy, what was his name? It was Sam Ballin. So Sam Ballin told, testified that he had told his wife that evening that when Oswald was arrested that there had to have been some sort of mistake because right. he didn't believe Oswald was capable of this kind of thing. And um, when his wife said to him, they've picked him up and he's got the gun and everything, and Balin says, Oswald just wasn't that sort of guy. If he had lined up 50 individuals, the one person who would stand out as being suspicious or strange would be Oswald. But I was very surprised when Oswald was arrested. Yeah. So that's that's the other thing that I was trying to convey as well, you know. And, and Johnny, what, if I could just jump in for a second, it's so interesting because you know we we hear the same things about like Sirhan, right, and Mark David Chapman, like all of these guys who do who you know uh, allegedly or you know whatever the case may be, but all these guys who who commit these these heinous you know assassinations, um, and and then. You know, there's this there's this smear job um, in in the press, right? And and they try to dehumanize the, these guys and make them seem like monsters. And and you forget they are human beings, right? And and um, I, you know, I think what what you're doing is is really trying to to make people see that side of it. And we will be right back. Joseph M. Leonard with the Constitutionalist Politics. Tune in for the upcoming episode for May 4, 
issue, never the issue, as well as, yes, Peter Serafin, Rosemary Downer, Don Gallade, Gista the Rapper, Cy Young, Jason Perry, and upcoming Jack Hagar, Andrew Thorpe King, Trent Rock, Ed Temple, Chris Morehouse, and more. Please tune in to Constitutionalist Politics. God bless. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people over the years, you know, making statements about Oswald. And, like, I think when I was at the Irvine, when I was at the Dupree Theatre in Irvine watching the Payne talk, uh, Mrs. Payne was basically talking about Oswald's, I think she commented upon Oswald's death, just kind of like it was a matter-of-fact thing. And, you know, when you when you really look at it, Oswald's death is... is, is is a tragedy in its own right. Man, the guy sure. was twenty-four years. The guy was twenty-four years old, right? Um, and he was a father to, to two young children, and obviously a husband to Marina. And it just seems to be that when people talk about Oswald and his and his death, there's always a dehumanizing thing about him. I've read stuff over the years saying Oswald deserved that justice was given by Ruby and all sorts of horrendous stuff. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. And, you know, you know and then, I just don't understand them. And there was the, the the magazine cover, the Life magazine cover of him with the rifle, which you know cemented in, in the mind of the American public that you know this was the guy, and he's horrible. He's an, you know he, he's evil. He's pure evil. He's standing there with a the rifle. I mean, how many? How many? You know, it's 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 funny because that you know that was such a a turning point. I think in the minds of of people. Um, that it really convicted Oswald in their, you know, in the minds of, of people uh, uh, in, in the U S and, you know, today we have politicians who, who, you know, pose for, for their, their Christmas cards with their family, with everybody holding a rifle. Um, so it, it really depends on the narrative that you're trying to, to, you know, to tell it's, it's very interesting. Well, it's quite funny. Cause I've, I've never really put a lot of, I've never really looked into the backyard photographs because to me they don't they're not they're evidence of nothing. I mean right. they're they're apparently taking two weeks or just shy of two weeks to the prior to the Walker shooting, months in advance for the Kennedy killing. That's on the twenty second. Marina testified that the originally testified, sorry, that the pictures were taken in late February, early March. But the problem being with that was the rifle wasn't ordered allegedly by Hadell until March 12th. So they kind of speculated that it was March 31st. But again, when Oswald is showing the backyard photographs when he's in custody, according to Will Fritz, the first thing he says was, they're forgeries. That's my face, but that's my face has been superimposed on someone else's body. Right. Now, I've seen experts say they're fake. I've seen experts say they're real. Now, it's kind of one of these things where it's like, when they talk about it in a court of law, if you watch Law and Order or anything like that, and it's almost like, you know, the defense will play and the prosecution will play their experts off each other. Right. So it doesn't, they both negate each other's testimony. And it doesn't really add up to anything. No, it doesn't. And the thing is, what you've always got to kind of realize is or under try and ask the question of 
why would Oswald want these pictures taken? Right. Because he never done anything with the pictures. Right. And all the pictures have done since 63 is help to convince a portion of the American public that he was guilty. Right. So they've always been to his detriment. Also, you've got the just the, the problems, the numerous problems surrounding Marina's testimony. Now, right. as I as I pointed out in the article, according to Texas law, marital privilege law states that a man or a wife cannot testify against each other in a court of law. They can only testify to help the other. Or, of course, if it's a frame that involves some a man against a wife, you know, like directly. But this wasn't the case. So on that basis, Marina Oswald could not have testified against Lee in a court of law. Right. Well, Marina was the only witness to the backyard photographs, allegedly. So because she couldn't testify to their origin, the backyard photographs actually would not have been allowed in a court of law because there's there's no one to testify to their to their origin, to to just everything that surrounds them. So it's another thing that I wanted to point out as well. So I always thought that the backyard photographs is is just a distraction, you know. And I've yeah. always questioned why why Oswald would want these taken. Because right. remember, Oswald is the one that directs the police to the pain garage where his stuff is stored. So Oswald must know that he is directing the Dallas police right to the backyard photographs. So it's like it's I think it's like the the alleged Walker note that doesn't mention Walker at all. Why would that note in the backyard photographs and the photographs of Walker's residence? Why would Oswald keep that that evidence, that incriminating stuff? But as Marina testified, burned a notebook and other materials relating to the Walker incident. So why burn some stuff but keep others? It makes right. absolutely no sense. So yeah, so it's it's very interesting, and obviously, of course, there's been multiple versions of the backyard photograph came out. I think there's four. Isn't there four now? I think there was a one that was found in the possession of Roscoe White. Yeah, Roscoe White. Yeah. There was one found in the possession of uh, George de Mornshield, and or five because uh, allegedly Marina and uh, Oswald's mother, Marguerite, burnt one. Uh, but that's <laughs> whether that's true or not, who knows? But they've never, to me, they've never been evidence of anything. No, I, I agree, Johnny. And and two questions here, buddy. Um, so one thing I forgot to ask you at the, the top uh, when we started this, um, I think I read somewhere, or maybe I heard you on Black Op Radio, you were talking that you got into the JFK research uh, because of your dad. Is that correct? Because that's similar to the reason I got into this because of my dad. Yeah, so my dad uh, loved to read about various subjects, whether that be the Kennedys, the American Civil War, through to Christianity, through to... Um, uh, Scottish history, world history, just everything he could get his hands on, he would read. And one of the things that I really took an interest in was the Kennedy assassination. And I can remember we would watch old reruns of the men who killed Kennedy. Right. And just very, and then I would ask him questions about it. And it really kind of hooked me in. And I think one of the first books I read on it 
was Sylvia Meagher's Accessories After the Fact, which is like one of my favourite books on the whole case because it's it, it's it's a, in my opinion it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it's got stuff wrong, but Miss Meagher wrote it in nineteen sixty seven, right, and it still holds up to this day. So um, yeah, he was the one that got me into it, and he also shared his his admiration of Jack Kennedy with me. And I've kind of just like, I've always had that since I was about 12 years old, I think, 13 years old when I started asking him all this stuff. And I've been seriously researching it since I was like 17, 16, right. 17. So I'm 33 That's now. similar so. to me, Johnny. I mean, my dad got into me. He was a huge Kennedy, uh, JFK and RFK guy. And, and he got me at a very young age, like probably the same age you got into it maybe even younger. And, um, you know, I've been researching it since I was like 16, 17. Um, but it's just amazing. But I do want to get back into to Oswald, Johnny. Let me ask you this, because and this was mentioned in the Oliver Stone's great movie, JFK. Um, why, like, say you're, you're the lone shooter. You're the lone shooter in the book depository. Why not shoot Kennedy when he's coming up Elm Street and you got a direct shot at him, but yet allegedly according to Warren Commission, Oswald waits until he, the car makes a turn on the Elm Street. Now, if you're a lone gunman, your best shot is him coming up Houston, correct? Yeah, I would agree. And we will be right back. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Residence Inn by Marriott in Scranton. Discover comfort and convenience in Scranton. If you're planning a short or extended stay in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, Residence Inn by Marriott, located at 947 Viewmont Drive, will ensure your stay is nothing short of exceptional. Their friendly team is committed to providing you with top-notch service and a memorable experience. Whether you're in town for business, leisure, or a bit of both, Residence Inn Scranton has you covered. They offer free Wi-Fi, an indoor pool, meeting and event space, complimentary hot breakfast, a fitness center, and an on-site market. And Residence in Scranton is pet friendly. Your home away from home. Residence in Scranton features spacious studio, one bedroom, and two bedroom suites, and all are complete with a fully equipped kitchen. There's a cozy fireplace lounge and an outdoor barbecue area. Call 570-343-5121 or go to marriott.com for more information. Residence in Scranton, where hospitality meets home. That's Enough Out of You is also sponsored by Fairfield Inn by Marriott. Located at 949 Viewmont Drive in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Fairfield Inn Scranton exemplifies travel made easy. They offer stylish guest rooms with plush bedding, complimentary hot breakfast with healthy options, one of the area's premier hotel fitness centers, as well as nearby dining options. While you're staying at Fairfield Scranton, Make sure you check out some local attractions like the Scranton Cultural Center, the Electric City Trolley Museum, Montage Mountain Resorts, and the Steamtown National Historic Site. Catch a Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins game or a concert at the Mohegan Sun Arena or take the historic Lackawanna Coal Mine Tour. Fairfield in Scranton is in the center of it all. Experience comfort and convenience in Scranton at the Fairfield Inn by Marriott. Call 570-343-5121 or go to Marriott.com for more information. 
Fairfield in Scranton, where hospitality meets home. I would agree, and uh, it's it's one of the points I put in the article as well. I think it's point number two that Oswald, of course, if you're a, you're a lone assassin, okay. Now you've 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 taken a plunge. You brought your rifle to work, and you thought I'm going to try and shoot President Kennedy. You have got you've got to be in a mindset, or you would be in a mindset of if I if I fail or I succeed. I'm basically forfeiting my life because, well, it's such a momentous thing, right? So what you would do is you would take the most advantageous shot at him, which is I'm coming towards the book depository. Because obviously if you miss, then you've potentially got him for a second shot. But to let the best shot go past you and then to go into Elm Street... That just makes absolutely no sense to me because he's then moving away from you. Right. The, the, only, the only way you would allow or want President Kennedy to be on Elm Street is because you've got him in a triangulation of crossfire. Exactly. That's, that, that's the only reason. The only and, reason. Um, yeah, because when you're coming up, when you're coming up Houston, as, the, as a lone assassin, you, that's the best that's yeah. the best. That's the best vantage point for you. But then, if you look at lone assassins in the past, if you want to look at Gabriel Princip, for example, these are men that are standing right next to their target. Right. You know, so it makes no sense why a lone assassin would choose to uh, to to sniper a target. It makes absolutely no sense to me, especially when. <laughs> The whole narrative is he missed Walker from like was it forty yards or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it makes um, no sense. No sense whatsoever. So when you really analyze the case against Oswald, the Warren Commission had a weak circumstantial evidence case against him, and like when you you take the shells at the scene that have no chain of custody, right? You've then got the paper bag, right? like C-142, which is in none of the contemporaneous photographs of the southeast corner window. And then you've got the fact that the rifle itself, you know, the rifle itself had a myriad of problems. It had a defective scope. It had a right. disintegrating firing pin. <laughs> also, as, also as well, you've got the fact that this man allegedly takes only four bullets but the Katana holds six, right? It holds, it holds, in total it holds seven. The clip holds six okay. with one in the chamber totaling seven. But he, what, but he uh, decides to just take four along, you know? <laughs> and that's just, to me, that's just, again, it's, it's insanity. Now, Oswald was highly intelligent. He was not crazy. I mean, Will Fritz even said that when he was asked, was he a nut? And he says not in not in that sense. He was he's actually high, he's pretty intelligent, and he was. You can tell that by just how Oswald speaks, the vocabulary. Sure. That Oswald. That's that's easy for me to say. <laughs> that he comes out with and says, like emphatically, you know. Right. And I just think, and I just think that there is absolutely no way Oswald would have taken four bullets to try and kill um, 
President Kennedy. I mean, what would happen, for example, if he had to shoot his way out of the the book right. depository, like a, right. like a Custer's Last Stand sure. type situation? Well, he you knew know? he knew one way or the other. He was either going, I mean, this is, you know, he was attempting to murder the president of the United States. And it's not like this was a, you know, a, like a drug deal gone wrong or something. They were going to fight him. So he was either going to go to jail for the rest of his life or he was going to die, one or the other. And for him to, you know, to not be uh, prepared as, you know, clearly the, you know, it doesn't appear that he, you know, that he was in, in the way that, that things worked out. Um it's just, you know, it's mind boggling. I mean, he was a very intelligent person. I don't think there's any question about that. And there's no way he would have been that sloppy um, no. with with what he was doing. And Johnny, one okay. of the other things that you point out mm -hmm. is, um, you know, the, the rifle had to be assembled, too. And, and what did Oswald use to assemble this rifle? Well, hey, well, that's a very good question. I mean, and the first person I ever heard talk about this was Ian Griggs. Now, Ian Griggs was the founding member of Dealey Plaza UK. Now, I'm a member of Dealey Plaza UK. We have, um, we have a good a UK following, but we also have a good American following as well. And we get like certain talkers, like Robert Gordon spoke for us, Bill Simpich, Larry Hancock, Jim DiGenio, Paul Blah. I mean, it's just, I mean, Chris Gallup's speaking to us next Saturday. I really like Chris, got a lot of time for Chris. And so he was the founder member of Dealey Plaza UK. And there was a demonstration by Ian uploaded onto YouTube of him assembling a Manlicker Carcano from scratch. And it was really interesting to me because I was like, that's a really overlooked aspect to this case. And just to see all the work that kind of goes into it. Mm -hmm. Now, Ian was using a screwdriver. Of course, there was no assembly tool found on the sixth floor. Right. So the Dallas, so I think it was, it's an FBI agent. I'm just trying to think what his name was. Was it, it might've been, um, it was Cortland Cunningham. Cunningham, um, they kind of speculated between Ball and Cunningham kind of speculated that Oswald would have used a dime coin to assemble the, the rifles, which is just absolute madness. <laughs> um, and Ian said, the, the, the funniest thing, sorry, was that Cunningham said that he could do it with a, with a dime coin. And he, and he tested himself and he, you know, and he got all assembled. But he never produced any evidence to back this up. And uh, Ian Griggs comments on it. And if I can remember verbatim, I think Ian said something along the lines of, it's no simple task to reassemble the rifle. And he said that it was easy to tighten the screws with a screwdriver, but it wasn't a simple task using a dime coin. The coin is thin enough to fit the recessed heads of the screw, but due to its tiny diameter, there's hardly any leverage, which means you can't really tighten the screw sufficiently. And uh, Ian had tried it many times and he had timed himself and he actually had to give up because he was getting blood blisters on his thumb because either he just couldn't get wow. the right purchase on the screws. And this is all on this. The, uh, Ian's demonstrations on YouTube. If you just look, if you just type up, I think it's Ian Griggs, Manly Carcano, it comes up and he shows you all the different components and, 
you know, and he and he talks you through what you have to do to fully assemble this rifle. Because obviously the story goes that Oswald has to disassemble the rifle, you know, to take into the depository. Well, the other charge is that Oswald makes this bag from scratch. CE-142, Oswald makes, apparently. Okay? Well, right. why would he not just make the bag big enough to carry the fully assembled rifle? Why does he have to why does he not why does he have to make the bag a certain size that he has to actually break the rifle down? Right. It makes abs- it makes absolutely no sense. No sense. You know, and the bag itself, well, of course, when the bag was, was tested, um, the bag that they've got in evidence was tested, it found that there was no bulges or creases that they could link to the Mamlika, and there was no oil on the bag itself. Now, the bag was wet, the, sorry, the rifle was well oiled when it was found. So how can you have all these different components in this paper bag, well oiled, and not have oil transfer from the rifle to the bag itself. You know, how could how could there be no bulges or creases found on the bag that would correspond to the broken down rifle? And obviously, yeah, and then they top it all off, the fact that there is no pictures of this bag on the sixth floor. And the testimony to, to be generous is an absolute mess regarding the bag. Some yeah. police officers say, yeah, we found the bag. Some police officers say the only bag we found was contained chicken bones from a lunch, and some officers say, well, I don't know who, I don't know anything about a bag. And that's all covered in Ian Griggs's uh, No Case to Answer. I think Ian had an article published through JFK Lancer called The Paper Bag That Never Was. And then there's a massive deep dive into that aspect of it. And then the fact that you've got the guy Troy West, who, who basically lived at his workstation. He lunched there, even lunched there when... Uh, the shots were going off in Dilly Plaza. And he testified that he never saw Oswald around the roller wrappers. He never seen him uh, engaging and making this bag. Oh, it's just and a mess. Johnny, wasn't it Jim Diagini who had said uh, the great quote, if if there's no uh, there's no bag, there's no gun? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 true. If there is no if there is no uh, gun sack, there is no gun. Right. That's as sim- that's as simple as it goes. That's why the Warren Commission's case it hinges on these fundamental aspects, single bullet theory. Absolutely, as Cyril Weck said, the sine qua non of the Warren Commission report is a single bullet theory. No single bullet theory, the Warren Commission report comes crashing down. Right, exactly. And then, you, and then you've got obviously contentious things like the bag. You've then got the the point about the the palm print on the rifle. And then you've got the chain of possession for CE-399. Then you've got the chain of possession for the shells. CE-543 has a dented lip. Couldn't have been used during the assassination. And again, always come back to the rationality of it all. You're Oswald, you're up on that sixth floor. Why would you not just pick the shells up? Right. Because without the shells, they don't know where the shots are fired from what window. And also, something that's often overlooked is the fact, why would Oswald hide the gun that's linked to his P.O. box (laughs) (laughs) on the sixth floor? Because So Oswald must know that when he he escapes, if you want to call it that, from the Texas School Book Depository, it's a race against time. 
Because as soon sure. as the police find that rifle and they link it to 2915, that's his P.O. box in Dallas, in, uh, which was taken out in October 62, I believe, they're going to see, oh, Hadell rifle shipped to that P.O. box. <laughs> he must know. Like, it's not going to take a rocket science to then work out who was the P.O. box name rented under, Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, and yeah, and he works at the Texas School Book Depository. So they would have put two and two together. So time was of the essence. Oswald had to get out of there. But he doesn't go to the Greyhound bus station. He doesn't go to the airport. He doesn't go to, He doesn't try and get out of town as fast as he can. We're told he goes back to his rooming house. And then he's arrested in a theatre. That's very strange behaviour if you've just assassinated the President of the United States. So Johnny, talk to me. You mentioned you mentioned the 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 palm print. Uh, talk to me mm. about the FBI expert Sebastian Latona, um, and how he testified that he couldn't develop any prints on the weapon. Yeah. So Latona. So I'll I'll have to, I'll go back to basically where it all starts with the with the palm print on the weapon. So apparently. Um, the weapon was first um, tested by a guy called J.C. Day, who was um, who was a Dallas police officer. And Lieutenant Day, when he was looking at the was looking at the the rifle, apparently lifts a palm print off of the rifle. Okay, but he never tells anybody that he lifts this palm print off of the weapon. So a guy called. Um, Oh, his name escapes me. He gives basically all the evidence over to this guy and he takes it to the FBI late on the night of the 22nd, early morning hours of the 23rd. <clears throat> well, there's a few, obviously, problems that are associated with that because, well, number one, when the FBI got the weapon, <laughs> when the FBI got the weapon, they couldn't develop any prints at all on the weapon. Uh, right. That's what Sebastian Latona actually says. They were, I was not successful in developing any prints at all on the weapon. And Latona's but a we- very respected, uh, uh, you know, in his field, very respected. Oh, Latona was the guy. You're right. If you got if you got Latona to be like testifying at your your cases, then that was that was a real plus point for the prosecution. Right. So. But then another guy for the FBI, the name of Paul Stombow, he testified that when he got the, when the Manlicar, when he'd seen the Manlicar, he noticed that the gun had been dusted for latent fingerprints. That there was a fingerprint powder all over the gun. Now, if you look at my article, you actually see a picture of Day working on the, on the rifle. And you can see all the fingerprint powder on the gun. But Sylvia Mager actually asks in her book, she poses a question to the reader, and it's, well, you know, how could powder survive on the gun from Dallas to Washington? But every single trace of powder and the dry ridges which were present around the palm print on the gun barrel under the stock, how could that vanish? Because there was no evidence that a print had ever actually been lifted from the weapon. Then you've also got the fact that Lieutenant Day stated that when he lifted the palm print off of the rifle, he had no assistance in doing it. He did it alone. So there was no one that could actually 
right. collaborate Day's assertions and Day's side of the story that he actually lifted the print. Now, the even the Warren Commission had serious problems, and they, they had significant doubt about the discovery of the tampering on the rifle, because there is a there was a commission document, and it's from August twenty sixth, nineteen sixty four. And it says there was a serious question in the minds of the commission as to whether or not the Palm impression, which had been attained by the Dallas police, was a legitimate latent Palm impression removed from the barrel of the Manlicar, or whether it was obtained from some other source. And for this reason, this matter needs to be resolved. Well, the other problem that Lieutenant Day has got is the fact that when the FBI, when he was interviewed for the FBI, okay, the FBI wanted Day to sign a sworn affidavit that he had in fact lifted Oswald's palm print from the barrel of the rifle on the 22nd. But Day refused to do it. He refused. He wouldn't sign it. And on that basis alone, that print would have been admissible in a court of law as evidence. Now, of course, <clears throat> you've also got Agent uh, Vincent Drain was the was the FBI agent's name who they gave the evidence to. In his in the book Reasonable Doubt by Henry Hurt, Vincent Drain told Hurt that he didn't believe there ever was a print on the rifle. And Drain says that it was a mountain pressure building on the Dallas police to build evidence in the case against Oswald. And Drain said that all he could figure is that Oswald's print was some sort of cushion because they were getting a lot of heat by Sunday night. Oswald's dead, of course, by this point. And Drain stated that you could take the print off Oswald's card and put it on the rifle. Something like that happened. So that's also a very interesting kind of point. And it's obviously from an, a, a, an FBI agent who was close to the case as well. Now, some people might say, oh, where would they, where would they be able to get a print of, uh, of Oswald, you know? Well, according to mortician Paul Grudy, yeah, the morgue. Who, who was in the morgue, agents arrived at the funeral home late on the Sunday night, about 11 o'clock, and they asked to be alone with Oswald's body. And <clears throat> so they were in there, they had a little satchel apparently, and um, apparently they went in there, they'd done what they had to do, and they came out. Well, when Grudy went back in, because he was preparing Oswald to be buried, he noticed ink all over Oswald's hands, right, showing that they had fingerprinted him and palm-printed him. Mm -hmm. And Grudy actually says, we had to take that ink back off him in order to prepare him for burial. Why the hell would you have to do that? Why would anyone have to go to a funeral home to fingerprint and palm print a deceased person? And we will be right back. DK's Corner, located on 802 East Lackawanna Avenue in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. Visit DK's Corner for hot and cold sandwiches, soups, salads, pizza, and delicious breakfast, including breakfast sandwiches, 
specialty coffees, and DK's Razzle Dazzle Flavor Shaken Espressos. And take it from me, the best cheese steaks around. Follow DK's Corner on Facebook and Instagram, or call them at 570-209-0278 to find out about their daily specials and catering. Check out DK's Corner, Oliphant's Little Hoagie Shop. And we thank DK's Corner for sponsoring That's Enough Out of You. That's DK's Corner in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Gracious Day Grains. Uh, Sean, you like to eat healthy, don't you? Always, buddy. I try to eat healthy as much as I can. Yeah. And there is nothing healthier than uh, what they call like farm to table, right? This, So when you, when you can get something right from the ground and, and make it and then put it right on your table. Um, and Gracious Day Grains, they have a tremendous selection it, and it's totally organic. Everything is, you know, they don't use any sort of herbicides or pesticides or anything like that. They have um, a bunch of different, uh, different products on their website, Gracious Day Grains. So if you go to graciousdaymilling.com, uh, you, you'll find a, a bunch of great stuff there, Sean. Yeah, you will, Billy, and and it's owned by Tom Maxey, who's a who's a great guy from Virginia. Um, he's a truth seeker, just like uh, me and you, buddy. And uh, Tom's growing philosophy follows the wisdom of farmers of centuries past. And a quote from Tom is: "If we practice the right rotations, we exclude the bugs and weeds without needing herbicides or pesticides." So. I mean, this is great, Billy. I mean, what he's doing is fantastic. There's cornbread mix. There's cornmeal, popcorn. He sells buckwheat pan. Sean, have you had buckwheat pancakes? No, buddy. Oh my, they're delicious. I love buckwheat pancakes. And they, and and gracious, uh, gracious day grain sells buckwheat pancakes. Just go to their website, and and you know you'll be able to find all of this stuff there. You can order it right off the website. You can find out all about how they how they farm and, and their whole philosophy, Tom's philosophy. It's great stuff. It really is, Billy. And one of the things he does is he grinds small batches at, at very low temperatures, which retains the flavor and the freshness. Of course. And and it I mean it can't get any fresher than that. I mean, it's right literally right from the ground. So again, go to graciousdaymilling.com and just, you know, take a look on there. You can order whatever you want then and, and they'll they'll send it right to your door Can, i mean again it just it doesn't get any doesn't get any fresher than that right from tom's farm to your door to your table so absolutely and eat healthy eat healthy and you'll feel better absolutely i wish i could do that i wish i could eat healthier sean I, well start with tom's stuff buddy I, i'm going to i'm going to order some of those buckwheat pancakes i love there making, you go i'm going to try them too billy yeah they're really good all right gracious day we thank gracious day grains for their sponsorship Thank you. So it's just all these things, you know, the origins of the of the palm print evidence. Of course, they says that um, he couldn't take photographs of the palm print. That's the other one. There is no contemporaneous photographs taken of yeah. Oswald's palm print on the rifle. And he says he never had time to do it because Curry told him that um, shortly before midnight to not go any further with the processing of the rifle because it was getting turned over to Agent Drain of the FBI to be taken to Washington. But um, by his own uh, testimony, Day um, um, was working on the rifle at 8 o'clock that night. 
So he had four hours to take these photographs and he never did. So, mm. yeah, it's an, it's an, an evidentiary debacle, th- this case against Oswald. And, and it's a lot of... Um, sorry. No, go ahead, Johnny. No, I was going to say it's, it's a lot of it's faith based. A lot of the a lot of the stuff is faith based against them. Right. Um, when you when you when you ask people to explain, you know, the chain of possession for CE three ninety nine, or you ask them to explain about the palm print, or you ask them to explain about the paper bag, they just don't talk to you anymore, or they just call you a conspiracy theorist and move on. Sure. You know, and, and the, the bottom line though is if Sebastian Latona, you know, probably the 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 number one expert in the in the world, really, if he says there's no palm print on a weapon, I tend to believe it. Oh, absolutely. And the fact of the matter is, there was there was latent prints on the weapon, and they tried to develop these prints. And what they actually did was Latona did he he got like professional lightning. They were taking all these high resolution pictures of the of the rifle, and then they broke the rifle down, and they were looking at all the components there on the twenty third, taking pictures. Still no evidence of any prints. They couldn't they couldn't develop any prints on that on that weapon. And, and then, Oliver course, put that in the movie. If you guys remember, Oliver put that in a movie where he he has it that, right. that it was probably taken at the morgue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it's quite funny because when I was in Dallas just there, I was actually, I was there on the 22nd and I, I on the 22nd at night, I was in the Texas theater watching JFK, wow. the director's cut. Wow. And that was, that, that was really like, that was really quite eerie because yeah. we, we kind of, earlier, earlier in the trip, we had been to the Texas theater. I just knocked on the door and the guy let us in. And he basically was showing us, you know, this is where Oswald was arrested when that day. And he's he basically says, you know, the theater has been it's been reconfigured since then, but this is the general area, this is the seat. So I sat in that seat watching JFK and uh, wow. the, the the scene where Gary Oldman, of course, is playing Oswald and he's he's being arrested, you know, and he stands up and you're just looking around and you're in that theater. Wow, it was it was pretty a surreal moment actually. Wow, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, you know, and then they have so they showed uh, Mark Lane's rush to judgment earlier in the day, and then they had um, but they had the war is hell, and um, oh, the other the other movie I can't I forgot what it's called, um, they were they were all on the billboard outside. So it was pretty interesting, and obviously they changed it later on that night for JFK and stuff like that. That was really, that was really cool. That was really surreal to be in there for that, to be in there for that movie. And it was the director's cut as well, so it's I think it's, it's about twenty minutes longer, something like that. Uh, but yeah, I really like, I really like JFK. It's a really oh, good movie. Great. Yeah, Johnny, people, what's, in, mm-hmm. what's I'm sorry, what's in the director's cut that's not in the. Uh... The, the theatrical release. I think you there's more. Them? I think there's more of. Uh, I know there's. Um, see there's, the scene when they're in, in the um, the sixth floor and it's abandoned. There's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of extra scenes. There's actually an alternate ending too. Did you see that part, Johnny? The alternate ending. 
Oh no, I never. They never showed yeah, that. Yeah, the there, alternate actually. ending has Mister X, which of course is based on Fletcher Prouty, Colonel Fletcher Prouty, but he actually meets uh, with uh, Garrison at, back at the bench in D.C. And they're talking about what possibly could have happened, and they talk about you know where Lansdale, General Lansdale, was in uh, Dallas. And they go over that, and it's it's just a, it's just a different ending, and how Garrison's telling them how things would have been different if Kennedy lived. And I actually like the alternate ending. So if you guys yeah, get a I, chance to see that, uh, it is on the director's cut. You could go to the alternate ending. I I kind of like it. Yeah, I definitely got to check that out. Um, I'm a I I, I said it in the article. I've have um real strong admiration for for President Kennedy and uh, Bobby as well. Oh yeah. Really um, and I um I've read all sorts of books about them. I just actually finished reading a book recently called uh, Johnny We Hardly Knew You. Okay. And it was written by it was written by Ken O'Donnell and Dave Powers. Oh, and, right, two two Kennedy's and, boys. Yeah, and you know just the different the kind of different stories that they would tell and just really how intelligent President Kennedy was, oh, unbelievable. and 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 how much humanity he had as well. I mean, they tell various stories about it. And um, Robert Kennedy actually wrote in Thirteen Days, which was a book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. That one of the things that haunted the president about, you know, the whole showdown with the Soviet Union over Cuba, was the the deaths of all the children of the world. You know, they had no right. role who had no say, yet they would be wiped out within the blink of an eye. And that really disturbed them. It did. And I think the more, you know, the more uh, I read about them and the more I, I try and understand them, the more kind of my admiration grows for them. And more as well, just the the revolution of Robert Kennedy after his brother's death as well. Right. You could see mm-hmm. on his brother's face at times just how pained he was at losing um, his brother in 1963. And uh, I've got a funny story about Robert Kennedy, actually. I was reading this thing, an article about, God, it must be about six months ago now. Anyway, this guy was talking about Robert Kennedy and he said that he used to call him Bob. His, his close friends used to call him Bob, apparently. And um, he would, this guy was trying to convince him to run in 1968. And Robert Kennedy was really, he was kind of reluctant to do so because he didn't want it to be seen as a, you know, Robert Kennedy versus Johnson because he didn't want people turning it into like a clash of personalities because it's well documented they didn't like each other, Johnson or, or RFK. No. And uh, the guy wrote a letter to him, kind of imploring, basically imploring him to, to run. And the guy said that he had been in Watts in 1967 and when he was in these houses and watts, you know, where these people were living in the most deprived conditions. Right. He says he never he never seen Mal- Malcolm X's picture on the wall. He seen Jack Kennedy's pr- picture on the wall. Mm, and wow. you've got That's and dumb. you've got and you and you've got to run yeah. because you need you have a you have an obligation to withhold and uphold these values that put that picture on that wall. Yeah. And I was I was really like I was really reading it, and I'm not an, emo- <laughs> I'm an emotional person, but I was like, "Wow, that kind of hits home." Incredible, and um, yeah, and and obviously, what happened to Bob was a Bobby was an absolute tragedy as well. And 
I said this on Black Up when I was speaking. I spoke to Paul Shred many four or five years ago now, and I was emailing him and I was asking him questions. I asked Jim to see if he could put me in touch with him, and Jim did. And out of all the questions I asked Paul Shred, I think I had about four or five email communications with him. And one of the last things I asked him was, um, what were you feeling, you know, when you found out about what happened to, to Bobby? Because, of course, Paul Shred was injured that night as well. Right. And he just put back, we had lost again. Yeah. And Bobby was the last yeah. best hope for the it. 1960s. That yeah. was the end. Yeah. That was yeah. the end. Yeah. And, and we talk book. about that, Johnny. We talk about this all the time on our shows, you know, how John and Bobby, they, they were just so different. Like, John's foreign policy was different almost everywhere compared to, to, to every other president. And, and it's just amazing what would have would have been if he lived. And I don't know if you read the book by uh, Monica Wiesak, and we had her on her show, Johnny. But Yeah, but she did a great job. Last president. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good book. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, and- I got put onto it for Jim as well because he'd done a review of it on Kennedy right. and King. Right. So it was really, it was really good. Really enjoyed that. And I've had her on. She's coming back and she's, she, that, that book just really shows you who Kennedy really was, you know, because we, we try to defend them against all these attacks too, because he's, you know, the character assassination against John and Bobby Kennedy has been terrible in in the the mainstream media. It's been awful. And, And that's one of the things we try to do on this podcast is, is, you know, we had people like Don McGovern on and Jim Diogenio, Lisa Pease, and and trying to get the truth out, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've got a book by uh, Paul Fusco. It's called a uh, RFK Funeral Train. Just basically a collection of photographs. Wow. Uh, and of because uh, because he was taken on a train from New York to Washington, mm-hmm. and just the expression on people's faces, incredible. The different the different types of people, you know, they were out there from young to old different nationalities, different backgrounds, right. rich, poor, they all came out and they stood on the side of these railroad tracks and they were saluting and they had signs, we will miss you, Bobby. And there was one woman, she was just standing on her own, she was an older woman, and she was just saluting the uh, she was just saluting the train. And it's just like, that's what these you... people... No, I was just going to say, that's what these people... like. John and Robert Kennedy, Malcolm, eh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, right? They they instill a hope in people, and it transcends it transcends their era because I'm still inspired by eh, John and Robert Kennedy, and this is 2023, 60 years after his assassination in Dallas, and I'm still reading up about him, and I'm still being inspired by his acts of courage, for example. And yeah, it's it, they're a real loss to um, real loss. And, the, and yeah, the thing with that train ride, the thing that I take away from that is the the look on the people's faces is you could just tell them that tell that these people knew that you know this was the last hope. You know, Bobby was the last hope, and and now he's gone, and and that's it. You know, you could just kind yeah. of see it. Yeah, I mean, even if you 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 listen to his speeches, you know, like this the off the cuff speech for um, Martin Luther King, and he quotes Aeschylus. Right. And the day after, he he um, he said he had a speech, and it's t- been uh, termed the mindless menace of violence. And I think that's one of my favourite speeches. 
and is in fact in my articles on on the, the last part if you go to the last part i included the speech in its entirety at the end of my articles because it just sums up the loss of the 1960s it sums up just how badly like like this world suffered you know for the loss of these figures and uh yeah it was it was just incredible it was just incredible it's an incredible speech and you know <clears throat> i i really admire uh both the kennedys when i was in so when i was in dallas just there i went to washington for two days and specifically went so i could go to arlington and uh, I went and paid my respects at Arlington to to both of them. <laughs> uh, they're buried not far from each other at all. And um, there's always a crowd near uh, Jack's grave when you walk around to Bobby. Some people go, some people don't. And that's uh, that's a real shame because Bobby would have been one of the one of the greatest presidents as well if he was oh, allowed I agree. to, uh, yeah. to oh, run. I agree. It's just if he was allowed to serve. It's amazing to me, you know, it never ceases to amaze me, no matter how many people we, we speak to, you know, from wherever they are in the country or around the world, the, the you know, the inspiration that people draw from these two, these two men, one of them who didn't even get to finish his first term, the other one never even got to be president. And yet people, you know, love them and admire them and, and are inspired by them. Uh, just, it, it, you know, I just don't think we're ever going to see that again. I really don't. No. No, and the unfortunate thing is, I mean, the 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 the, the assassination of President Kennedy is such a watershed moment because if he's not killed in Dallas and he and he gets to serve a second term, you might have found that Martin Luther King would never have been killed because he wouldn't have spoken about the Vietnam War. Right. And Bobby would never have, and Bobby would never have been killed. Right. And it's just a, it's just, it's just a, a like a domino effect if domino, you want to call it yeah. that. Because from Bobby's killing, you got Richard Nixon right. all the way up to the present day, and the Kennedy assassination really was the start of people not trusting the government yeah. anymore. Yeah, it was just, it was the start of that mistrust, and that's just decayed through the years, unfortunately, and. Um, and it all started, in my opinion, on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. I mean, I've read, I've read many books about the Vietnam War. John Newman's book right. There's a really good book that, if you're interested, it's called um, a Virtual JFK. Yeah, I read it. And Tremendous it book. Tremendous really book. good, really good. And the the beauty of this book is they've got historians around the table, around opposing the table, views, yeah. and they just let them talk. Yep. And it's like, wow, this is incredible. Amazing. It's like a fly on the wall type thing. So there's no doubt that if um, if Ken, if Jack Kennedy had not been killed, there would be no Vietnam War. No Vietnam, and, absolutely. And you know, you see people saying, you know, oh yeah, but he increased he increased uh, the the troops Advis- in Vietnam. Well, well no, advisors, advisors. He, it was advisors. Correct. Yeah, there was, was no advisors. troops there. That's the key. Yeah. So and, there was no it, troops. So this is what I say to people. I'm like. When Jack Kennedy took the presidency, he was kind of in a, between a rock and a hard place when it came to Vietnam, because if he's if, if from day well, one he inherited he started, all that, of course you did. But if he started pulling, you know, advisors oh. out, oh, it would have been a disaster. Been, he would have been called. He would have been labeled a communist appeaser and blah blah blah. 
but he was he was never sending in uh, troops. So what did he do as a compromise? He sent in advisors. Exactly. And even and even like old Ken O'Donnell, Dave Powers, whether it's McNamara, Ted Sorensen, they all say the same thing. Uh, yep. Vietnam would never have happened under Never Canada. have happened. Never have no. happened. And Johnny, one no. of the things, you know, Colonel Fletcher Prouty talked about the the amount of the um, the amount of advisors that Kennedy actually put there is is overstated because uh, he explained how a lot of times a president would actually put the advisors there. They'd be in the region and then they'd be moved over during the president's term and they'd actually be credited towards that president. And Prouty talked about how a lot of those advisors were already in the region before Kennedy was president, put there by Eisenhower. And then the generals just moved them over into Vietnam and they they counted those towards Kennedy. So when they say, well, Kennedy put 10,000 advisors there, he actually didn't. He actually increased them maybe by half of that, you know, but they love to throw that number out there and make it look like, you know, he really was. But like you said, advisors is a lot different than putting troops there. And Kennedy put zero troops there. He was pulling the advisors out at the end. That's a fact. Uh, John Newman did a great job explaining that. Um, So there's no doubt on that one. And Sam 263, yeah, the first 1,000 advisors home for Christmas and then complete withdrawal by uh, 1965. That's correct, yeah. And Johnson reversed that. He did, yeah. And what's quite interesting about about all is, I think, uh, and Johnny, we hardly knew you, Ken O'Donnell talks about a story where Jack Kennedy says about the Vietnam War and he's saying um, we're pulling all... The, the the advisors are and when Ken O'Donnell's trying to leave the Oval Office, the president shouts to him, and that means that goes for all the helicopter pilots too. Yeah. So really meaning like it's all it's all Everybody. coming out. Yeah. And obviously, of course, um Kennedy obviously reached the agreement on a neutral layoffs. Yeah. Um the nuclear test ban treaty was a marvel yep. at the time because that was that was had serious opposition, and he overcame it. In fact, I think that's one of the most proudest things he managed to accomplish was the nuclear test ban treaty. Absolutely. But his um, his speech in June in nineteen sixty three, the American University American address. University, yeah, yeah. It's, that's that that's one of my the piece that's one of my favorite speech. Yeah, but then yeah. there's he's got loads of. I mean, have you ever heard his Algeria speech or read any? Oh yeah, Algeria tremendous. Speech? Yeah. And he got blasted yeah. for that. He got blasted for that Algeria speech. Yeah, he did. He did. But he had the courage to do it. Yep. He and did. that's that's what's that's what sets him apart. And I mean, people say now, you know, that uh, Jack Kennedy, oh, he'd have been a Republican, or he'd have been this yeah. and that. I, I think Jack Kennedy would have been seriously hurt at um, the state of American politics right oh, now. Oh, he'd be he'd, he'd be crushed. Be, what what we're dealing with today. He'd be crushed. And, yeah. Because the thing is, Johnny, you know, you touched on it right there with Algeria. Kenny was very anti-colonialism. He understood that, how damaging colonialism is. And that's why he said, you know, the French got to get out there, get out of there. And same thing with Vietnam. When the French were there and he meets Gulliam in, in Saigon and, and Edwin Gulliam tells him, you know, the, the, there's no way the French are going to win this war. Kennedy understands when he goes into office and Jim Diogenio talks about this all the time. Kennedy understands what's going on there in Vietnam. He knows that, you know, we have to get out. But like you said earlier, you can't just pull the advisors that are already there 
and, and leave that mess that's there. And and he inherited a lot of this mess with Cuba and Vietnam and Laos and, and the Cold War. I mean, you know, that that was all, you know, that was given to him. And he had to fix this, this these messes all over the world when he enters office. Well, that's that that's that's part of that story for Ken O'Donnell as well. Kennedy said to him, and this was days before Texas, he said, um, on my second term, I'm going to be I'm going to become one of the most unpopular presidents of all time, but I right. don't care. Right. Uh, and that's what and that's what he says to Ken O'Donnell. He says, so we better make damn sure that I do get reelected. You know, and that because ties in and he, civil rights, Johnny, because he absolutely. knew that the, the Southern Democrats were totally against civil rights and they were going to go against them. And he knew he was already battling the, the, a lot of the governors down south and, and like Wallace and all them. So he understood yeah. that the, the Southern Democrats were going to turn on him. Absolutely. And I mean, you're, you're saying about uh, the Algeria speech there. It reminds me of uh, Martin Luther King when he had his speech in 1967 against Vietnam. Right. They turned, they turned right. on Dr. King. You know, the, 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 the media turned on Dr. He King. He got for that speech. Absolutely. But these these are men of high integrity, courage, like the, the, that's just, what's missing today, Johnny. This is what I'm missing yeah, today. Yeah, exactly. I, exactly. And I actually it's funny enough, I just uh, read an article there about um Robert Kennedy Jr. He's um they're talking about the because uh, I think it was Martin Luther King Day in the United States very recently and you know, they were saying, oh, the Kennedy administration, you know, opposed, um, put wiretaps on Dr. King's uh, phone lines, uh, they bugged him, yeah. et cetera. But it's like, yeah, but Robert Kennedy told them about it. Right. That's what they don't. Yeah. That's yeah. what they don't. That's what they don't. That's what they don't say. Robert Kennedy told Dr. King about the wiretaps. So um, it's very interesting. And, you know, it's uh, in that Vietnam speech that, that, Mark, that Dr. King's, uh, it's in Washington. He quotes John F. Kennedy, and he says, uh, "Those who make peaceful resolution impossible make violent. Is uh, it not make violent retribution inevitable, or something like that?" Yeah, it's uh, something along the lines, you know. And it's uh, very poignant, very poignant. But yeah, I've, I don't. I think if he was allowed to carry out a second term, I think he would have definitely been up there with Abraham Lincoln, maybe yeah. even surpass, maybe even surpassed Lincoln. You know? I think so. I mean, the changes that would have been, I mean, it would have been, and then think about, you know, you had, you would have had eight years of John and you would have had eight years of Bobby, maybe right after that. I mean, things today would have been so different. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's why his assassination is so relevant to this day. You know, people say, well, it's a murder case. It's 60 years ago. And that's why I, I feel like a lot of people, they don't want, they try and bash Kennedy, you know? Right. Oh, he was nothing special. Yeah. He was this and that and the next thing. It's because they don't want you asking questions exactly. about his, his assassination. Exactly. So, so yeah, so it's all, so it's, it's still important to this day. And, you know, the people who I really feel sorry for as well in this whole thing is Oswald's daughters. Yeah. I mean, they... I mean, Oswald probably has grandchildren. Do they know they're related to Lee Harvey Oswald? You know? I mean, imagine imagine watching footage of your dad being killed on TV. Obviously, they wouldn't have watched it live then, but 
no doubt they've seen the footage as they were growing up, pictures of it or whatever, you know, living with that, oh yeah, the stigma of, they're still living with the stigma of the assassination. And and the same does go for Marina. Um, she obviously, uh, Marina Oswald is quite a, quite a tricky one because, yeah, Marina obviously said a lot of things that incriminated her husband. She was under the, pressure though too. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, exactly. She was. She was threatened with deportation and etc. Yeah. But um, but it's when people obviously now they'll go, they'll rely on our word. Obviously back then, or they'll rely on our word now because I've seen people go, yeah, but Marina thinks he's innocent now, and it's like, yeah, I get that, but you can't pick and choose. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. You can't pick and choose which statements of Marina you believe, because um, I mean, people like Freda Scobie and even Norman Redlich, they complained about Marina's like credibility said I think Scobie actually says that Marina lied to the to the Warren Commission and stuff like that so but yeah she was under pressure and she was she was basically after the assassination she was basically taken with her family and she was basically kept incommunicado at in six flags for months on end so the way I always very... look at Oswald Johnny is is he to me he he's kind of remarkable in a way because you look at him he's a 24 year old kid basically and he really you know he's done a lot of things up to this point and I look at him as I was looking at him as like a government asset and he was being used by various government agencies and then he was just manipulated and turned you know turned on at the end and and used as a patsy is in his own words but if you look at you know the things that this guy did you know, only at the age of 24. I mean, in, in, you know, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many, how many uh, 21 year old guys go to Russia right? <laughs> during the cold war? And um, how many, how many of them get to come back with a Russian wife? You know, that's that another point that was touched upon in JFK, you know, I think right. it's when they're all sitting around the table and uh I can't remember the woman's name, uh, but she's like, it's almost impossible to get Russian sweethearts out and stuff like that. Right. So yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting aspect to Oswald's legend, if you want to call it that. I remember uh, Walt Brown said to me one time, you know, Oswald's legend was such that if there was an assassination attempt on Cast- um, Castro, on Khrushchev, Oswald could have easily have fit that frame also. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, it's it's a very interesting character. I mean, he he comes off he comes off the boat. He's not met by the FBI. He's not arrested as a traitor. No, but um, I think it's Spaz T Rankin meets him. You're right, and uh, he, he's like an anti-communist, yeah, and then he gets comes, in with yeah. the, he gets into the white Russian community, right? And obviously, they're all anti-communists. But apparently they they just um, they're okay with this uh, this uh, yeah well socialist you know and um, yeah. Marxist Marxist if he, he called himself Marxist Leninist yeah yeah now another interesting point to Oswald is he had no friends that were Marxist or communist right I mean if, how many if you have a shared if you have a shared interest in something. Like Oswald's supposed to be a Marxist, he, right. it would only have been natural that he gravitated towards people that shared that that outlook on life, you know. But right. all the evidence all points to the fact that he is hanging about with 
anti-communists like Dave and F- Dave Ferry and working in the same building with Guy Bannister and yeah, exactly. it just reeks. I think it was um, reeks of intelligence. Was it not, was it not Richard Swiker that says everywhere yeah, you look to fingerprints of intelligence. fingerprints of intelligence? Yes, yeah, but even it goes back to the the, the Kennedy case. Okay, so. You look at Oswald and you look at the evidence against him and when anyone looks at this evidence seriously, it's weak and it's circumstantial and it and it wouldn't hold up in a court of law. Whether Oswald could have got a fair trial is another question. And right. Even J. Edgar Hoover said that Oswald's uh, constitutional rights were grossly violated and that's coming from J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, it was horrendous. During my Lancer talk, I spoke about Oswald's rights and I spoke about the lineups that he was placed in. And Oswald's rights were grossly infringed. I mean, he requested a lawyer repeatedly and none was given to him. Now, a guy, um, the head of the Dallas Bar, the, the head of the ACLU, sorry, wanted to try and get in touch with Oswald on Friday night. And the police just kept on telling him, oh, Greg really owes his name. And they just kept on saying to him that Oswald hasn't requested a lawyer, doesn't want a lawyer. Well, during the midnight press conference, he says, I want someone to come forward to give me legal assistance. And right. if you look at, and, and if you look at, um, is, it, is it Gus Rose? I can't remember. It's one of the police officers testifies that um, Oswald was asking for a lawyer inside the Texas theater. So it's like Oswald was wanting a lawyer. Now, they, they permitted a lawyer to go in and see Oswald on Saturday. Um, but the problem is he was a civil lawyer. He didn't, he, he didn't try criminal cases. Right. So all he did was to go in and speak to him and say, do you want a lawyer? Now, Oswald said to him that he wanted either John Apt or he wanted someone for the ACLU because he was a member of the ACLU. The guy goes away and he says, um, Oswald's want an either apt or a member of the ACLU. But the the president of the ACLU is asking to see Oswald and he's been denied access to him. So, and if Oswald had a lawyer, he may not have been killed the way he was killed because if he had legal representation, Right, you could you would have probably found that the lawyer would have seriously objected to how he was going to be transferred to the to the county jail. Right, because remember, before Oswald was transferred to the county jail, the Dallas police and FBI were getting phone call were getting phone calls of this um, of this random guy who actually turns out, according to Billy Grammer, that was Jack Ruby, saying that if you proceed to transfer Oswald the way you're going to transfer him, we're going to kill him. Right. Right. And what did they do? They never done anything. They, they, in the face of all these threats against this guy's life, who is the most important prisoner in the history of Dallas County and possibly even in the United States, mm-hmm. they transferred them in such a way that it, it was, it was basically allowing them to be killed because if they were going to transfer him that way, they should have at least had all press, etc., behind a certain line so they couldn't be that close to him. The car should have been in place. Right. But the car wasn't in place. Now, Lavelle 
and Elsie Graves both testify to that. They were they were they were really surprised that the car wasn't in place because before Oswald's led through the door to um to to the car, Lavelle actually asks Fritz to go out and check if the car's in place and if everything's ready. And Fritz goes out and says, "Right, let's go." And then he walks out, and the car's back into position. If that car was in position, Ruby could not have shot him because the car was where Ruby right. shoots Oswald is where the car was going to be. Right, you know. And um, so, yeah, it's all <laughs> from the transfer from the transfer of Oswald. The Dallas police facilitated his murder. There's there's no two ways about that. Exactly, really, I agree. Yeah. I mean, he was you brought know, out to lamb to slaughter. There's no question. Yeah. About that. I mean, I, I argue in the article, I say that although it wasn't standard procedure, Oswald should have had some sort of body armor on because this was a special this was special circumstances. Absolutely. Especially in the face of all the threats, body armor on. Also, if he was led out under armed guard, like guards that actually had their guns drawn, maybe that would have deterred Ruby to step forward and try and shoot him. You know, but I'm convinced through the phone calls, Ruby didn't want to kill Oswald. No, but he was he put in he a was position. Yeah, he was put in a position where he had to do it. He had to because that's it. what he said. He says if uh, we are going to kill him, and Billy Grammer the next morning says because he knew Ruby, right? Um, said that he put two and two together. He put the the voice to the face, and it was there's no question it was Jack Ruby that made that call. Right. So it was very interesting. But when I was in Dallas, I got to I got um. Scott Reed, who's a member of Daily Plaza UK, and Scott's an expert on the Walker case. He um, he got us a tour of the old city hall, so we got to go down into the basement. We got to see. Uh, we went, got to ride in the jail elevator. We got to go into Fritz's office. I was I was in Oswald's wow. cell, where wow. where he was held. Uh, got to tour all that building. So they've got this thing where. Um, down down the stairs, it's where the interrogation the well, the interrogations. It's where the lineups were held, and um, they've got exhibits. Then they've spent a lot of money on this, but it's not open to the public because I think it's a law school now or it's a university or something. And uh, they've got all these exhibits uh, down the stairs, and you can read. And they've got this glass. Uh, they've got this. They've got this glass just before the point where Oswald is shot, and you can look through the glass and you can see it. But that, the frame of where he gets laid through the death jail elevator, that's all still there. So it was, it was really it was really quite interesting. It was really quite sad as well, because at the end of the day, a man lost his life here. And it was really quite, it was really quite a reflective moment seeing that. But um, yeah, it was, it was it was really educational. Going up the stairs as well into Fritz's office. Wow. And, um, and, and just seeing where, it was a, quite a small room. Right, really quite a small room, and you can actually just feel just how in the atmosphere must have been. The tension must have been palpable. I mean, you've got Oswald there, you've got Dallas police officers, you've got FBI, you've got Secret Service, you have got people questioning, question them, and um, yeah, it must have been the circumstances. Just must have been absolutely something you can't even imagine it. And of course, right. when he's getting led led out from the 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 interrogation room into the elevator. They're asking him questions. Did you fire that rifle? Or um, I'm just a patsy. Did right. Did you kill the president? No, sorry, I've not been charged with that. You know what I mean? Because actually, on the Friday night, 
Oswald didn't know why he was arrested because he, he, no. he says that um, people I, I haven't I haven't shot anybody no sir I don't know what I am here for you know so it's it's quite interesting um, so I so when 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 you're seeing all that and you can when you're walking the halls you can I, I was actually like I was hearing um talking because I've heard it so many times yeah it's quite it, it was quite something. But it's definitely something you should. Have you two been in Dallas? No, you guys been no, in Dallas? No, we haven't. My brother no. was, but no. I I haven't been there. Well, I, I highly recommend it. I've been twice. I really highly recommend that. Yeah, I mean, Dallas is really that Dealey Plaza itself is is pretty small. Right. Um, people people think it's this big large area. It's actually in fact quite small. And um, I got a I got a VR headset for Christmas, right? So puts his VR headset on. I'm searching for different things. So I just go, you know what? I'm going to see if there's anything JFK related on this. And there's a documentary that pops up. So I'm like, all right. So it's an interactive documentary thing. So I downloads it, puts it on, and I'm in standing across for a daily. I'm standing across from the Texas School Book Depository, as wow. it was on November 22nd. The clocks there, the Texas School Book Depository signs on the building. You know that kind of. A concrete kind of art thing that was on the windows that's yeah. all there and you're looking around and you're like wow this is pretty incredible and it takes you to like 10th and Patton you see it's computerized but you can actually see like um, all the houses all around because obviously at 10th and Patton now there's a high school there but that's right. just like you can see the houses uh, then you're outside the Texas theater seeing Oswald being arrested then you're in the jail uh, seeing him getting led through the corridors it was really strange, really strange, but highly. I mean, the documentary, it's it kind of toes like you know the party line, if you want to call it that. But just to kind of be immersed and standing there, and it does have footage of the motorcade, so you're standing in that Hibbert Brennan position and you're wow. seeing the motorcade come and come past you and then just kind of disappearing, and then you're on Zapruder's perch. Um, uh, yeah, very. I took pictures of it and sent it into uh, Daily Plaza UK. I also sent it to Chris Gallup and, and uh, was like, check this out, you know what I mean? Because pretty surreal. Because they do stuff like um, at the Tippett Seat at 10th and Patton, they've got the car, but it's actually, you know, pictures of the car and they've got like the police officers all around it and you're just kind of just standing there watching this happen. And you're like, yeah, this is, this is really surreal. But wow. um, yeah, it was pretty cool. And in fact, actually, it was it was pretty cool. But it takes you it takes you into the building itself as well. You're actually standing at the southeast corner window. You've got the boxes all around you, and then it takes you into the police search. Uh, yeah, ah, it was it was it was pretty surreal just to stand on on that floor and see all the boxes, the books. Because I've been in the I've been in the, I call it tech school book deposit. I've been in the sixth floor museum a few times now, I think three or four times. And uh, to be honest, it's, it's quite disappointing. Yeah. Because um, they pushed, uh, they pushed uh, the Oswald guilty uh, angle. Well, as I said, I said to, to Len recently, I said the best thing they could do if they're trying to be impartial, which they're not, is right. to go, this is the, this is the evidence for his guilt. This is the exculpatory evidence that points to his innocence, and mm. let the people decide. Yeah, you know, because that's the evidence in the re- that's the evidence on the record. You know, right. when when people say there was a palm print of his found on the gun, <laughs> yeah, but this is the this is the circumstances which led to that discovery. 
and people can actually, you know, look at the evidence and go, yeah, that 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 doesn't, you know, that doesn't add up. Or some people might look at it and don't care and say, well, I just believe there was a pamphlet on, and they can believe that as well. But give people both sides of the argument, but they don't. Right? They don't. It's heavily, they don't. heavily influenced by the Warren Commission. Oh now, yeah. That we know so much since 1964. Mm-hmm. You know, we know so much for the release of the the files for the ARRB. We've also got the HSCAs, uh, which is the last official stance on this case. The conclusion was President Kennedy was po- probably resu- uh, assassinated by a conspiracy. Right. That's the last official word. But yep. Ruth, Ruth Payne, um, when she was on that talk, she says, I don't like to speak to people that believe it was a conspiracy. (laughs) But that's the, that's the, that's the official word, you know, that's the last. So it's it's all, it's all quite, it's all quite interesting. And um, I mean, have you guys, have you guys read the articles? Yeah. Online. Your articles. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. I've read them. I've read them completely. It's fantastic. In fact, Johnny, um, there was so much that, yeah, I mean, we've, we've had you on here for a while now. There's there's a lot of stuff I wanted to get to that I couldn't. So I, I'm hoping that you would come back and uh, come on again and we could talk about because there's a lot of stuff I didn't get to. Uh, Billy, how are you on time, yeah, buddy? Yeah, let's let's do one more, Sean. One more question, then then we'll then we'll have to wrap. I mean, we Johnny, we've kept you on a, a long time, but but yeah, uh, Sean, why don't you go ahead with one more question? Go ahead. Well, the the thing is, when we go back to you, you talked about you know Oswald. Well, under AJ Heidel, purchased a weapon. Okay, the the Manlicher Carcano. Uh, let's talk about that day, uh, March 12, 1963, when that weapon was purchased by by Heidel. Uh, where was Oswald that day? Well, he was at work at Jagger's Child Stovo. He, um, if you, I think it's Commission Exhibit 1855, which is a picture of his time card for Jagger's Child Stovo. And the the rifle was purchased around 10.30. That's what the, the time stamp on the money order says, 10.30, okay? Well, from 8 o'clock in the morning all the way through to 5.15, I think it is, in the evening, Oswald's accounted for at work. And it doesn't... It, it, at that time, the job he was working, he done, like, you know, he put time against separate jobs. So, for example, 8 o'clock till maybe 8 30 was he was doing something and 8 30 till 9 he was doing something but his times are all accounted for right and all the job numbers are next to you know the job he was doing because his supervisor would have to sign off his time card well he's accounted for at work when the rifles ordered on march 12 1963 so you know i've had people say to me oh the time card's wrong or someone else would have had would have covered for um well Where's the evidence for that? You know, right. so it's it's a it's a it's a fact that when the rifle is ordered, Oswald's accounted for it at work. Obviously, with a with a rifle itself. Oh, and also another thing as well, um, a guy called uh, Richard Stovall, who worked for Jaggers, right. said that uh, Oswald had a good record of being on the job, and he didn't have any absenteeism. And Albert Jenner asks him, he was prompt and worked every day and had little in the way of being off. And Stovall says yes. You know? So he had a good record. He was prompt. He was punctual. Um, 
So if Oswald was missing from work for a couple of hours, two, three hours, to go and walk, um, buy this money order, send the money order and all that, he'd have been away from work for a substantial amount of time. Right. You know? But there's, there's no, no there's no record. There's there's no evidence of that. There's no record. Of course, there is other um there's other important questions to, to be asked when it comes to the money or um, it comes to the, the order of the rifle. And the first one is why would you why would you mail order a traceable weapon to your PO right. box? I mean that's the most important one. Sure. Because in Dallas at the time, you could just walk into any store, give a false name, walk out. And I mean, the only thing Oswald would have gambled on was if it was him that ordered the weapon, which I say he didn't, is somebody months after the fact being able to identify you as the purchaser of that weapon, which strains uh, credulity. So, no, I, I, um, I see no logical explanation as why he would have mail-ordered this weapon. Of course, it contravenes the postal regulations because the postal regulations state that, um, for example, the application form for the PO box, um, the postal regulations state that that needs to be kept in its entirety. Um, well, when it says uh, other people that can use the box, Oswald would have to put Heidel's name down there for him to accept mail at that PO box. But that section of, of the of the application form was destroyed, apparently. But they kept the one in New Orleans. So that's that's an interesting that's an interesting but I think it's section 846.53H states that uh, the third portion of the box rental applications identifying persons other than the applicant authorized to receive the mail must be retained for 2 years after the box is closed. So that should have been kept. And obviously I, I think I when I read Stuart Galliner's uh, book cover up which is really good if Hadell's mail had went to 2915 and Oswald had not put Hadell down, it should have it should have been endorsed address the unknown and a te- and return to the sender. Mm-hmm. So that's the postal regulations. So that's a very in- that's a very um, interesting point. And of how did the commission well, handle that, Johnny? How did the commission handle Oswald being at work when the, the rifle was purchased? Well, they didn't address it at all. <laughs> I mean, they 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 relied solely on the testimony. They have a habit of doing that. Of, yeah. Well, they relied solely on the testimony of Harry Holmes. Okay. Now, Harry Holmes was a postal inspector, but Harry Holmes was also an FBI informant because they con that his family, Holmes's family, contacted JFK Lancer and said, uh, "Please, obviously, remember in the context of the times, to be an FBI informant was a badge of honor." You know, so he was an FBI informant. Also, as well, the FBI, if you read the hosted report, the FBI were monitoring Oswald's mail because they knew the contents of a letter sure. that Oswald had written to, to Vincent T. Lee. Now, how could they know that the contents of his letters, but they turned a blind eye to a revolver and a rifle addressed <laughs> to somebody in a different name arriving at Oswald's P.O. box? Right. That should have been a ringing alarm bells left, right, and center, but right. apparently they don't, they don't know anything about it. So, but if you look at Commission Exhibit two five eight five, this is a document from the FBI, okay, and it's in the Commission volumes, of course, and it says claim the post office box in Dallas, 
to which Oswald had the rifle mailed, was kept under both his name and that of A. Hadell. Well, the FBI's investigation has revealed that Oswald did not indicate on his application that others, including A. Hydell, would receive mail through the P.O. box in question. So the obvious, the obvious, obviously, question to that is, well, the obvious answer to that is, well, how did they know unless they had that section of the application form? So um, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, obviously, it's a very interesting facet to the case. It's the whole mail order of, of the weapon. Now, right. there's a strong case to be made that the chain of custody for C-2766, which is the Mamlikar Karkano, actually starts on November the 22nd, 1963. And, and of course, you have got, you've got other things like the, um, the, the, the weapon itself, the condition the weapon was in, and the, I mean, it was quite, it was quite funny because I, uh, I, I was, I think it was part five of my article, I talk about the ammunition. There's no evidence at all that Oswald purchased ammunition for the weapon. Right, and there was only actually two stores in Dallas that sold the weapon, uh, the ammunition, and both of these guys told the FBI when because the FBI and the Dallas placed on a canvas of all the stores that sold the ammunition, whittled it down to two. Both these men were shown pictures of Oswald, asked if he had been in to buy ammunition for this type of weapon, and both of them say no. So it's like, so where did Oswald get the ammunition from? You know. So right. um, there's all sorts of, it's quite funny because Sylvia Magar says in her book, she says, um, this singular assassin squandered more than $20 of his meager earnings for a rifle, but unwilling or unable to spend a small additional sum for ammunition, stole, borrowed, or found on the street five cartridges that just happened to fit the weapon. And those five cartridges sufficed from March through November 1963 for dry runs, attempted murder, and successful assassination. <laughs> of course, she's being, of course, she's being sarcastic. Right. But that's 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 what the Warren Commission want you to buy. You know, when they're looking right. into evidence like that. But of course, when Oswald's possessions are searched at Beckley and at Irvine, they find no evidence whatsoever that he owned a rifle. They never found any ammunition. They never found any boxes of ammunition. They never found any cleaning solution, no oil to maintain the gun. They found nothing. Interesting. So, yeah. so it's, yeah, it's a very interesting aspect of the case as well. So, I mean, I, I, to me, Oswald's innocence is, I, I, in my opinion, it's it's established beyond any doubt that Oswald was right. innocent. I agree. Yeah, and um, when you look and and you stick to the evidence, the amount of people, of course, that and it's their prerogative, but they jump down rabbit holes and you know and and they they just get lost in the mire. I've always been of the opinion that if you prove that Oswald is innocent, then the assassination stands as a conspiracy. It's exactly. a default. It defaults to a conspiracy. So you have got you've got to prove, uh, or you got to show that Oswald, that the evidence was fabricated against him and that he was framed. And then the murder of John Kennedy stands as a conspiracy. Because remember, a lot of people don't realise is that in November 63 alone, there was two prior attempts on his life. Right, exactly. One in, one in Miami, 
in Chicago. Uh, in, in, in Chicago. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting. I mean, the, the Walt Brown said to me one time, he went, "It had to be successful because if it for some if for some reason or another it wasn't successful, and Jack Kennedy got away from Dallas." Robert Kennedy's Justice Department would have been all over this investigation. Sure. Of course. Exactly. Yep. yep. So yep. something I've always just remembered. Yeah. Oh, Johnny, this has been this has been fantastic. Uh, you know, we we kept you we've kept you a long time. We appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you uh giving up your uh your your Sunday football match for us. Celtic, buddy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel, I I've been getting I've been getting notifications and we've we've won five nil. Oh, so that's uh, that's, that, that's quite good. That is that's quite good. good. So we're through. Nice. We're through. Right. We're through into the Scottish right. Cup. So that's good. I, I heard you're Celtic fans, right? Yeah, well, I am. Like I am. My brother's a huge Celtic fan. My brother's a way bigger fan than me, Johnny. He follows it constantly. He's a huge fan. Oh, really? Does he get up and watch the games early in the morning, etc.? He's he's been known to do it. Yeah. In, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. There's a New York uh, Celtic supporters club. In New York, and I know they get right. He's been like, there. Well, he's been really? There. Yeah, yeah. You have a amazing. nice conversation with my brother, Johnny. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I mean, well, guys, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed that. Oh, great! Thank oh, you, thank you Johnny. This has been Johnny. tremendous. Yeah, Johnny Cairns, uh, JFK case not closed. Key evidence dismissed, ignored, altered, or suppressed to frame Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone assassin. It's the book. And we'll get it on our uh, bookstore as soon as we can. But uh, until then, you can you can find that on Amazon or wherever wherever else you get your books. So, Johnny Cairns, thank you so much. Uh, we thank really you, Johnny. It. No, I really enjoyed that, guys. And hopefully, uh, can come back on at some point and speak to you guys again. Oh, definitely. yeah, that'd be great because we back. only covered about a quarter of what I wanted to, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> I know I kind of I, I probably just went off on a bit, a bit of a tangent about the Kennedys and all that because uh, well, the thing it's is, just something really, I love to talk about. There's a lot of information. It's hard to answer these questions in a couple of sentences. I mean, it's, it takes a lot to explain it. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And for people that for people that are new to the case or whatever, like. You can't go wrong by sticking to people like Sylvia Mager, Jim DiEugenio. Right. Uh, Jim's got a new book out called uh, with Paul Blair called Chokeholds. Chokeholds, right? We uh, have we really have Professor good. Blow on. Yeah, a couple yeah. times. Paul's a Paul's a really nice guy. Great I met guy. Paul in, in Dallas, uh, and he's part Scottish as well, so that's where he must get it from. You know, he's, he's oh, is, uh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he's a really nice guy. Uh, I met him at Lancer, uh, but yeah, fantastic. You know, and it, and obviously, you've got the Jim's documentary Oliver Stone, yeah, Destiny Betrayed. Yeah. There's, so, there's so many avenues to this case, and we know so much now. And uh, yeah, if anyone, and obviously check out articles on Kennedy and King. That's just a that's just a fountain of knowledge. That's the best website on all these cases, in Tremendous. my opinion. Tremendous. Yep. You know. But guys, you take care, and I'll see you later. All right, thank you, Johnny. All right, Johnny, take Take care. care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. See you, buddy. That's enough out of you. Podcast is executive produced and written by Bill Rader and Sean Kane, and edited by Bill Rader. The That's Enough Out of You podcast and logo are exclusive property of Bags of Chicken LLC. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or accounts of this podcast without the express written consent of Bags of Chicken LLC is prohibited. So don't even try it.